listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Grief is layered, and every layer is interwoven with hundreds of threads that connect to different aspects of our lives. Each time we embark on a new venture or close the door on a previous one, there's an opportunity for our grief to make itself known in a new way. It could be wishing the person was there to share in the joy or craving their specific brand of solace in the face of a challenge or a disappointment. It could also be reckoning with the ways you've had to learn to live without them, looking back over the days, weeks, months, and even years you've traversed without them in their physical form. Shelby Forsythia was in college when her mom died, and it was the ultimate heartbreak coming at the tail end of several other losses that occurred over the course of a few years. Since that time, Shelby has moved into a place of claiming her grief, giving herself space and permission to grieve her mom and all the other losses in her life. She's also moved into a role of helping others who are grieving. She does this through her podcast, Coming Back, and her newest book, Your Grief, Your Way. Shelby's also hosting a series of virtual workshops on things like anger and grief and sitting with tough emotions. Shelby is a return guest on Grief Out Loud, so if you want to check out our previous conversation, be sure to tune into episode 131. Oh, I almost forgot. Thanks to the adventure of recording from home, there's some landscaping noise during the second half of this episode. So if you find yourself wondering, what is that weird buzzing? It's the leaf blowers. It's always the leaf blowers, right? Shelby, thank you so much for being back on Grief Out Loud for appearance number two. It's really nice to get to talk with you again. I'm always so excited to be here. Thank you. And I know we're going to talk all about your new book, Your Grief, Your Way. But for listeners who are new to you, didn't hear our first episode, like give us just a little rundown. Like what's your connection to grief? Oh, yeah. So uh, the biggest loss that I have faced up to this point in my life is the death of my mom in 2013. Um, She had breast cancer that came back very suddenly. And by the time we found out that it was breast cancer that had returned and it had metastasized uh, and there was nothing more that doctors could do, we had seven days with her until her death. And so while a lot of people classify like car accidents and natural disasters as sudden losses, I also classify this as a sudden loss because by the time I, she died, I was still reckoning with the with the news that she was going to die. Um, and this was kind of the, the cherry on top of four years of hell in my family. My dad had brain aneurysms that he almost died from. And when doctors go digging around in your brain, you become a different person. And so there was grief in that. Um, and then there was some job loss in our family as well. And um, this was when I was in college too. And I decided to... <laughs> come out of the closet in this four year span to, to a family and to um, a state, like the whole state of North Carolina that was both hmm, like accepting on the surface, but not underneath. Mm. And that was really hard to reckon with that kind of loss of 
identity as well. So in this tornado where all of this is happening, it's finally like somebody dropped the piano on me with the death of my mother. I'm really appreciating what you talked about in terms of people hear oh, someone died of cancer and they all of a sudden have this imagining that it was this long drawn out thing and people had all kinds of time to say goodbye and that it doesn't feel sudden or shocking because you quote unquote knew it was coming. And I, I think of people who, even if it was two years from diagnosis until when the person died, they still say, but it felt so sudden. I didn't think they might actually die. I still feel like it's, it's sort of pulled the rug out from underneath me. So I, I really appreciate you like pointing that out that how careful we have to be when we hear how someone died to kind of check all the assumptions that come along with that. Yeah. And this is something that's just now coming to me because I don't think, especially immediately after her loss and starting to study grief myself, I would not have put her death in the category of sudden or unexpected loss. And now looking back almost seven years later, I see the person I was. I try my best to remember the thoughts that I was thinking at that time and the things that I was really focused on. And I, I kind of resonate with that. It's like, I never thought she would actually die. Well, and how do we know what death is until we experience it? And she was my first big one and the first that I witnessed in some fashion in person. So it wasn't like they were living. And then nine or 10 months later, when they died, we flew up to their house and saw them in a casket. It wasn't that much separation. It was like she was breathing this morning and then she was not in the afternoon. And the the time that those things happened together was just so close. Wow. Yeah. So, so now I'm learning to embrace that as a truth for me is that that was sudden and unexpected, especially for a a 21 year old girl. Yeah. What changed for you in terms of understanding yourself or your awareness of your grief by that recognition of like, Oh, this counts. This gets to go in the category of sudden. Mm, I think I allowed myself and my trauma about it to be real. I think at first, (laughs) I think I definitely knew I was traumatized by my loss, but I was hesitant to label it as trauma. I didn't want to acknowledge that, that I was triggered by sights or smells or sounds or that I'd have these memories that followed me around and seem literally sewn surgically into my brain. Um, And now that I'm allowing that to be the truth, that her death was traumatic, even though it was not split-second lightning traumatic, I'm able to give myself a lot more grace and freedom in terms of how grief shows up. Because if, (laughs) if I don't have the story of, oh, it's trauma, then anytime I'm triggered... I tell the story of, oh, why does this bother you so much? There's a self-abuse that happens. But if I say I was traumatized by the death of my mother at 21 years old, we found out she's going to die. And then she had a week, essentially, before her death. That story of of beating myself up or not allowing myself to to be what I am, (laughs) essentially, it goes away. It fades into the background a little bit more. And this different voice of, yeah, that's real yeah, that happened. This makes sense that this still occurs for you. Like a gentler, more compassionate voice gets to show up. That seems like the perfect parallel to your two books that you've written. So your first book that you wrote was Permission to Grieve. And now your new book, Your Grief, Your Way. And I think about as you were talking, it was like, by acknowledging it as a sudden death, you give yourself permission to have the thoughts and feelings that come 
under whatever we might categorize as trauma or traumatizing. And then you figure out a way to make space for that unique grief for yourself, given all the aspects of your mom's death. And I'm curious with your two books, is there a way that they're connected? Like, was there something about writing permission to grieve that then gave rise to your grief your way? Oh, I like that. Nobody's ever asked me that before. Um, I think that they both continue to take apart the threads our westernized society is so tightly woven about what it means to grieve or what that looks like. And so it's almost like um, uh, I'm rumbling at this giant tapestry with a chainsaw being like, and this doesn't work, and this is a myth, and this is not true, and this isn't how it actually happens, because it seems as if society has this really airtight picture of what grief is supposed to be and what grief should look like. There's a very perfectionistic or even an idealized picture of what life after loss should be. And so many times it involves a triumph story that's all wrapped up in 90 minutes or moving on or getting over it or having it stop after a period of time um, or even having it look a certain way. Like don't keep a shrine to your deceased child in your home. Instead, why don't you start a 5K? There's like, there's judgment and all of these gross things involved with it. And so both books do a lot of subtle and not so subtle work kind of giving a middle finger to all of those societal expectations that are pressed so hard upon grievers. Um, and I think that the, the way that they're different, Permission to Grieve as my first book definitely needed to be, this is partly my story, but also what I learned from it and how it might be able to help others. Because in experiencing giving myself permission to grieve, I kind of uncovered a framework for how it's possible to give yourself and other people in your life permission to grieve, and even how to ask for it from friends and family who don't know how to allow you your grief. And your grief, your way, hmm, it exists because it's almost as if I needed to remind myself that grief doesn't have to be done all at once. That's another societal myth is that we have to tackle grief in one fell swoop and then we're done. Um, but that grief can be lived with, acknowledged, healed uh, in small, small, small ways every single day. And, and small does not equal small impact. And so the, the power of acknowledging grief daily can be really tremendous. And so they they kind of have some themes in common. You'll notice me using similar language and similar words, but the format is completely different between the two. Yeah. And speaking of the format, you know, as I was reading through it, it's like each entry is a standalone. Like there's not a linear narrative to this book of like start chapter one and then get chapter three and round it all out in chapter five. It's like each entry is it's its own unique entity. And what was the decision-making process of how you formatted the book? Ah, this was actually um, something that was handed to me by Penguin Random House, because the, the short story of this is that um, Your Grief, Your Way was commissioned by Penguin Random House. They were looking for somebody who knew about grief and had already written about it to write a daily guidebook for grief. And they said, this is what we're thinking. Can you fit into this template? Um, but I think intuitively the balance between having uh, a motivational or an inspiring quote from another grieving person on one day, and then the counterweight of an exercise or a practical tip or a visualization or a journaling prompt on another and have it go A, B, A, B, A, B throughout the whole book. It's very much this, um, I'm communicating with the internal 
with the, the mind and the heart and the way you talk to yourself about grief and the things that you believe. But then in having these exercises and these journaling prompts and the things you can do out in the real world, it's also communicating with the external. It's like, where can you put your hands on it? How can you write it out of your body? How can you dance it out of your system um, as often as it appears and in whatever form it appears? And what I loved about this is that during the writing process, I essentially was like, okay, how do I tackle a book that has 366 entries in it? They're all different. And I need half of them to be quotes and half of them to be exercises. And I just had two totally separate spreadsheets, one of quotes that I loved and one of exercises that I've used with my clients or found to be helpful for myself. And I did like one of those classroom exercises where it's got like states on one side and the capitals of those states, but they're mixed up on the other. And you like draw lines across the page to connect the right ones, but over 180 times. <laughs> and so you'll find if you read the book linearly, there's kind of a flow to it in terms of September 25th will be a quote and September 26th will be an exercise that corresponds in a loose way to the quote. But you can also do roulette where you just flip open to a page and be like that resonates with me and then shut it and go on with the rest of your day. Um, so you're really not required. Yeah, to start anywhere, you're not even required to read the entry for this day of the year, you can start with your loved one's death anniversary, um, you can start with their birthday or your birthday, or um, a holiday that you have a fondness for. Yeah, the ping ponging of internal and external because grief is a process that happens, I think, in both places. And also thinking too about how when we're grieving, a lot of times our capacity for concentration and focus gets uh, challenged in some way. And so having a book that doesn't require long stretches of concentration to like piece it together, I'm just imagining this as a, as a gift to folks in grief who have, you know, like five minutes where they can focus and that's about what they can take in that day. I'm like, okay, I can open up to October 12th. Here's this little quote. Here's an activity done for the day. Yeah. And I love that too, because that was something I struggled with that surprised me after the death of my mom was not being able to read. And in some instances, not even really being able to listen uh, for long stretches of time. I know we're on a podcast right now. Listening was slightly easier than reading because I didn't have to force my eyeballs to do anything, but to, to absorb words and then to put them together and then to understand what they meant. Like that was a lot of energy and a lot of work and effort that was happening. And so even, even if you listen to the audiobook version of this, which I'm so grateful that Penguin Random House broke it up literally into 366 different days that you can scroll through as chapters. In the audiobook, you can tap on one and it's like less than two minutes of your time or attention. And yeah, even in flipping through this, it's like you, you can read this, you can absorb it, and then you don't have to engage with it. But beyond that, something happens with grief memoirs and other grief books, like my book, Permission to Grieve, where if you stop reading at some point, you have to hang on to all the information that came before. But with this one, literally pick it up, read a passage, put it down, and you don't have to retain any memory of where you left off or, or the last place that you were in the book. It's like you get to clear up that piece of your hard drive. You don't have to store that memory. And anything that you don't have to retain in the aftermath of loss is really valuable, just making a little bit more of that space. And especially right now during COVID-19 yeah. pandemic where, you know, I'm not in the, in the midst of any type of like immediate grief. 
And I cannot remember last week, <laughs> like, you know, something will have someone in a meeting will be like, oh, yeah, when we talked about it, I'm like, I have zero recollection of that at all. So having a book where you don't have to track what came before in order to move forward sounds amazing right now. And I know this is likely an impossible question, so I apologize for asking it. But if you were going to pick for today a quote from the book and an exercise from the book that are, I'm not going to say your favorite because that's impossible, 366 of them, but like something that's really standing out to you in this moment. I'm going to flip to a random page while we're on the mic and just see what lands. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to pair September 7th and September 8th together. And this is on page 130 if you'd like to keep score at home. September 7th says, the fall is not the hard part. Rock bottom is not the hard part. I couldn't believe it. I realized with overwhelming certainty that the hard part was the return because the return required continually making the choice to come back every moment of every single day. Mm. Stephanie Zamora. You may quickly realize after the death of a loved one that the day they died is not the hardest part. It may be the worst day of your life, but it is not the hardest part. The hardest part is returning to life again, because while you had no say in your loved one's dying, you do have a say in your living, and choosing to live after someone you love has died is one of the hardest choices we make. It's okay if life after loss feels more like a struggle than the day your loved one died, because often it is. And then September 8th says, using visual objects to mark time, is a common way grievers encourage themselves to live on after a loved one has died. Consider making a paper chain with 30 links representing 30 days. Each morning you wake up or each night before you go to sleep, tear off a link from the chain and say, I've made it another day. Repeat this process as often as you like to encourage yourself to continue living life after loss. You might also try this in reverse, beginning with one paper link and adding a new one every day for 30 days. It can be agonizing to see time passing, link by link, without your loved one here, but it's also a tangible way to remind yourself that you are capable of continuing and surviving at a time when going on seems impossible. Oh, I love those. Thank you, Shelby, for generously sharing them with me and and with our listeners today. And I was thinking like, that sounds great for dealing with grief. It also sounds great for dealing with right now, too. You know, if you look back, it's like six months that we've been in this pandemic land. And yeah, to be able to say like, oh, I'm still here. I'm still choosing to get up every day and still choosing to like engage with my life, whatever that looks like in this day. And to have that visual marker, yeah, it just seems really inspiring right now. And um, for me, something like a funny visual that's coming to me now is um, in cartoons like Tom and Jerry, when one of them would be in jail or something like that, they would tally the days that they'd been in there because when we feel trapped or when we feel powerless, it's almost if time just mushes into nothing. And so something that can ground you or help you retain your sanity in that place, for lack of better phrasing, and, and help you see how far you've actually made it can be really powerful. Because something I hear a lot from the clients that I work with and people in workshops I lead is this, this wonder, like this awe that like, I I can't believe I survived that. Like, I can't believe I've gotten this far. So people will say it's been a year, it's been a year and a half, even three or four months. They're like, I can't believe that I am still physically alive. 
after all of this. And something that helps you prove that to yourself can be really impactful. So I imagine there's like 101 answers to this question. So we'll have to just stick with one for today. But, you know, you, <laughs> with your work and your writing and your practice, you engage so much with folks who are going through grief. And I'm guessing also folks who are in the position of wanting to support somebody who's grieving. And what do you think is something that our world, our society, our culture, culture, like still doesn't get about grief? I think the biggest one right now is that it goes so, so much farther than death. And this is coming up a lot with COVID-19 of, of if you haven't lost a loved one, you have no right to grieve. And nobody's saying that outright, but there's almost this subtle disqualification of your loss if a person that you love hasn't actually died. Mm. So things I'm thinking of things like job loss or having to uh, reschedule a wedding or a graduation ceremony or some kind of other event or um, losing out on the ability to see friends and family or physically relocating or even losing a pet right now seems to be disqualified because it's not the death of a person that you really love. And gosh, I wish if I could make people know something about grief and everybody would have to learn it and remember it <laughs> and retain it <laughs> and abide by it. Um, it's that grief is happening anytime there's an end or change in what was normal. And our entire lives, if we, as we know it, have changed since, for us in the United States, since March, for other countries much earlier. People talk about going back to normal or creating some kind of new normal after COVID-19. And I just don't understand what they mean. Mm. Because with grief entering the picture at this level, the normal that we knew can no longer exist. It's like it makes, it cancels it out. It makes it impossible to go back to not knowing a world where coronavirus doesn't exist. So whatever quote unquote normal we create going forward must be created with coronavirus in mind. And so, yeah, maybe those two together. Grief is more than just death. And there really is no return to normal in the sense that life could be exactly like you once knew it. Yeah. So I cheated. Two answers. That's okay. We'll take a two for one. <laughs> and yeah, in that second part of what you shared, it makes me think of when someone does die in our life. And oftentimes there's this urge to like get back to who we were before, get back to the way things felt before. And then that slow recognition over time of like, oh, I can't ever go back to who I was before because I'm so fundamentally changed by this experience. And mm -hmm. and then to the first part that you were saying, it's it's interesting in that grief, I think as a term and a concept is coming so much more into the forefront and the highlight for people because of all of the like non-death losses that people are experiencing. And, and it's an interesting tension and dissonance. I know I experienced by working in the field of, wow, it's amazing that people have a bigger awareness of grief. And then how do we hold and honor that while also being careful to not slide into equivalencies and thinking and feeling a little protective of people who have had someone die when the conversation sometimes unfolds as I know exactly how you feel because I just lost my job or I know exactly how you feel because I can no longer, you know, go to my 
kids graduation we had to reschedule it and when those equivalencies happen then people's individual experiences oftentimes go back underground because it's like oh great everyone's talking about grief but nobody understands what grief means to me so I'm curious if you've been navigating that and in, in your circles in in the field as well I think the thing that I always start with is the opposite of what you just said which is I can't possibly understand how you feel for grieving people, sometimes this is this can come off as I can't even imagine, uh, which I don't like when people say it because I'm like, I think you can, you just don't want to imagine what this reality is like. But to say I can't possibly understand what you feel and then follow it up with, I'm so sorry, but I'm here in support of you. But of course you're grieving to, to validate whatever emotional experience they're having in any way. To say I can't possibly understand what you feel is to honor somehow the uniqueness of their grief. And another thing that I use with my clients so much is just saying, yeah, that's real. That happened. That's the truth for you. And that makes a lot of sense. And just using these words that no matter if somebody's coming to you with a major financial loss or housing loss right now, which is really real, or a health scare or a COVID-19 diagnosis coming back positive, that's real. That's powerful. What does that mean for you? I can't possibly know what it's like to be in your shoes but I'm listening. Yeah, there's so much in that sitting with someone and saying it's real and what you're feeling counts as grief, you know, for folks who are going through something that's not a, the death of somebody is how much space can get created just by being like, oh, it counts as grief. Oh, well, now I have access to all these other resources like your books and <laughs> things like that where right. people might think, oh, I don't qualify to go into that room or that virtual room because I haven't had somebody die. Well, yeah. And it goes back to the beginning of our conversation where it's like, once I qualified my mother's death as trauma, I was allowing myself to be triggered by grief. Um, when in the past I wasn't before. So when we start classifying things as grief, we allow ourselves access to all of those, A, emotional experiences, but B, you know, identity experiences, not knowing who I am, existing in uncertainty, trying to reinvent our self-perception or definition when we don't have a lot of the answers anymore. Um, and then doing things like actions, like rituals that feel grounding in the midst of grief or honoring the life that was. Um, we get a lot more permission to do things like that when we acknowledge that the thing in the room that we're feeling is grief. I think too about the the cumulative effects of loss too. So if you have had someone die and then there's all these other losses that we experience throughout our lives too and how they kind of interact with one another or build on one another. And I mean, you've had some major life changes since the last time that we talked on, on this podcast and you moved, you moved many States. And I was just wondering how, how did grief show up for you in your move connected to your mom's death or, or separate from your mom's death? That's a great question. It's continuing to show up in new ways, so I don't have a whole answer for you yet. I have partial <laughs> answers because the, they're the ones that have arrived so far. A lot of it is building on top of things I'm continuing to learn about losing my mom in that so much of her death has taught me how to mother myself. And that's not necessarily to say, well, I don't need a mom and to come at it from this, you know, you're not the boss of me or you don't own me or whatever gross energy that is, but very much that since my mom is no longer physically present in the world, 
to be here as a support system for me, I have to do a lot more mental, emotional, even spiritual like work to accomplish the things that she intuitively knew how to do in life. So a lot related to self-care, a lot related to not judgmental listening to myself, (laughs) Um, a lot related to making things funny or laughing at myself when I get way too serious about my life. Um, and knowing, and this is something that I teach in my, in my workshops and with clients too, knowing that in the midst of, or in spite of every single thing that's happened to me in my life, somehow I have always managed to have a roof over my head and food on the table and all the other things may have been shaky or uncertain or unknown. Um, but that was a thing that, that my mother was able to provide for me in life is no matter what happened, there's a roof over our heads and food on the table. And to be able to be that kind of constant bedrock for myself has been really powerful. That being said, I'm living alone for the first time in four, four and a half years or so. And this is the first time I've relocated to another state since my mom died. I relocated from North Carolina to Chicago uh, seven months after her death and now moving from Chicago to Washington state uh, almost seven years after her death. The last time I lived alone, I was deeply, deeply, deeply grieving. Um, And when I say deeply, I think I mean that powerlessness and despair were very top of mind for me. They weren't things that I dipped into occasionally, which still happens now. They were the experience that I was living. And so to live alone again and to be with myself and my thoughts within four walls with a cat, and that's it... um, It's fascinating to just observe myself sometimes at what what a difference it is to be living alone and have a whole different set of thoughts. And then too, when that despair and that powerlessness does arrive again, because here we are all grieving in the midst of a pandemic and I'm experiencing other griefs alongside and parallel to that, some of the same stories are coming up of the world is not a safe place. You have no control. Not everything is within your power. And it's so much different telling those same stories now almost seven years later. So a lot of self-observation, but then also bringing in aspects of my mom that are helpful, that continue to help mother me where she can no longer in physical earthly life. So you touched on this a little in, in what you were just saying of how being in a situation now or COVID-19 or other things that are happening or bringing up those familiar feelings of powerlessness or the world is not safe. And I was just thinking about some of the other current context that's happening with, with the pandemic, the upcoming election, the uprisings against police brutality and, and racism, and, and just wondering how, like, where's your grief fitting and sitting and changing and or not changing or just showing up in the midst of all of what's happening right now for us? I love that question. That was not what I was expecting that question to be. And I love it Um, because what I'm seeing is happening. And this is the case for so many people that I'm working with too, is that seemingly all of a sudden grief is becoming bigger than ourselves and not in a grief is crushing me and I have no voice and it's out of control kind of way, but there is grief for ourselves and the circumstances of our lives, but there's also grief for our environment. You and I are both on the West Coast, which has been on fire uh, for much of this summer slash fall season. Grief for 
the structures that our country was founded on and how twisted and warped they are and how rooted in a lack of acknowledgement of grief they are. There is grief for friends and family and these ties that are severing because of political, racial, cultural, gendered beliefs and all that that implies. And then there is grief too in seeing the world in such a state of uncertainty, financially, economically, in the health sphere with coronavirus too. And so there's something about, it's all falling apart right now. And so when we're experiencing grief, we're grieving for ourselves and the things that we're personally going through, but it's like the grief extends to our friends, to our family, to our workplaces. And then I, I keep seeing this picture of like ripple effect, but these wider concentric circles of I'm grieving for this group, but I'm grieving for this country. And now I'm grieving for all of humanity. And so these feelings that we experience at such a personal level are almost extrapolated into the all as woo-woo as that sounds, but it's like, I am grieving for the entire state of the earth as I am grieving for myself. And this to say too, Modern Loss just came out with a tremendously good op-ed um, just yesterday or the day before about how knowing is prepared for the shock waves of grief that are going to follow this pandemic. It's like, we are grieving now, we are going to continue to be grieving into the future. And something I've had to tell myself and my clients is that we, cannot grieve grief like with great depth until we really feel safe enough to do so and so i think it makes sense that when we start to enter whatever the heck a new normal is going to be after this whether it be a year from now five years from now 10 years from now 20 years from now whenever we enter into that space of feeling safe and rooted again financially health-wise family-wise, career-wise, politically, economically, whatever that means, whenever we start to feel safe again, we will see grief arrive in a big wave again, because now it is safe enough to come to the surface. It's like when grief waits for you at nighttime, you do all the things you do in the day, you take care of the kids, you take care of yourself, you go to work, you walk the dog, you do all these other things, and then grief pops up right as you're getting ready to go to bed. I believe there is some part of this grief that's happening even right now that will wait for us. And that's not a prediction of a doomsday or a disaster, but there are deeper emotions here that even I have yet to put any kind of label or vocabulary to. It's like I'm in them now, and then maybe looking back, uh, I'll be able to really see what they are and were to me. You reminded me oh, when... The wildfires were really raging all around pretty close to Portland where, where I live. And we were in a place of like checking evacuation statuses every five minutes, checking air quality every 30 seconds, packing up the car, getting important papers, making a list of everything that, you know, in the house for potential insurance purposes, like doing all the stuff in the midst of crisis. And I was anxious and I wasn't sleeping very well. But that's about all I was feeling was basically like panic and then like a lot of doing stuff. And then when the evacuation level came back down, the air quality was still terrible. But like I, I knew I wasn't going to have to get in the car in the next second to flee. I started thinking and sitting with more like, what does it mean that all this is happening? And thinking about the forest that I spend so much time in and thinking about the trees and the rivers and the, and the communities 
And I just started crying one morning and I was like, well, I don't have time for this crying. What is happening? There's no time for tears. No time. I was like, wait a minute, you work in grief. Hold on a second. And I was like, oh, I'm not in crisis, go, 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 do mode right now. And there was enough space for some of the feelings to come in. And I thought I found myself with the urge to like create some more panic, you know, so I wouldn't feel the feelings. And so just you reminded me of that where I was like, hey, wait a minute, here's this thing I do for work. Like maybe I should just sit and like be sad for a moment and let myself feel that feeling. Um, so just thinking about that idea of like, yeah, we're still in a, in a way we're kind of ebbing in and out of the doing and the panic each time there's like some new thing happening. And that over time, if if we get to a place where some of the most urgent things do settle in some way, that there may be opportunity to really touch into like the emotional effects of everything that we've been through. So yeah, it's not doomsday, but I do take it as a little like foreshadowing, (laughs) like, Maybe make some space and like, don't give yourself a hard time if you wake up crying one morning. Well, and it's almost like um, grief hangover too. It's like, we're taking in all of this. I'm going to use the word trauma. We're taking in all this trauma. We're taking in all this uncertainty. We're taking in all of this awful news and all these terrible statistics right now. And so it's like, we're drinking the experience of it. And only later will we really know how much it's impacted us mm. emotionally and be able to put words to it and say, oh my gosh, this has this has really affected me in some way. And it's okay kind of whenever that shows up. I mean, I see clients two years after they lose a loved one, five years, 10 years, sometimes even over 20 years. And they're like, I finally feel safe enough to go deep with this thing. And that makes perfect sense. There's like no, no right or wrong time to hmm, acknowledge the grief hangover in the room. <laughs> No expiration date on that. Right. So Shelby, as we come to the end of our time together and all that we've just talked about, I'm really curious, like what's helping you right now personally? This is probably not a coincidence. Feels like one, but it's not. I've had a couple guests on my show coming back in the past three or four weeks or so, and they all revolve around grief in the body, expressing grief through the body, dancing grief through the body. Um, calming the vagus nerve in the body, all these things that are related to how our physical bodies respond to trauma. And I'm finally finishing uh, Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. And so I'm very conscious of like what it feels like to be living in a body right now, not just having this as the container that everything happens in, but even where sensations are coming through in my physical body and something I do in the mornings, if I feel like If I feel like working out is too much of a strain on my system, like working out feels too productive. (laughs) It feels icky. It feels like it's a checklist item. Um, And it feels more draining than freeing. Um, I've started dancing recently and I just moved here. So I'm missing quite a lot of furniture. So there's a lot of empty space (laughs) to just be silly in. But I have this um, playlist on Spotify that I'll put on that's just full of a ton of my favorite songs and this is actually an entry that I wrote about in your grief your ways just dance it out but but really allowing my my arms to swing and my legs to bend and my head to go in whatever gesture or direction I need it to go in and to to shout these words and run around at I don't know 6 30 in the morning bless my neighbors um it's just so fun and it feels freeing at a time when it's easy to feel very constrained I mean, we're still advised not to leave our houses. We are literally muzzled or masked 
in public and you can see whatever symbolism you want to see in that. Um, and even right now in certain spaces and places like Zoom meetings and stuff, grief is not so welcome. And so to have, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes in the morning where everything is welcome and it can look like crap or look really silly or just let that exist and let it be what it is. It's, it's a way of getting the jitters out, but I think it goes beyond that. I think it's a way of allowing grief to have a say. Yeah, and sometimes grief will have its say, even if we don't make that space for it. So sometimes creating right. opportunities <laughs> good idea well yeah I'm like if I make room for you now do you promise not to hurt me later (laughs) it's almost like I'm in a negotiation contract perpetually with my grief um but but part of it I think is good it it prevents grief from building up to a space where it becomes explosive or even dangerous to my physical body yeah and this you know can go in a totally different conversation but we talk about repressed grief or grief that does not get expressed and that can turn into all kinds of um physical ailments or health conditions or things like that. So to give grief the space to dance in whatever song it wants to listen to or move to has been really helpful to me right now. Yeah. So I have a lot of stuff to put in our show notes today because there's links to your new book, Your Grief Your Way, links to your first book, Permission to Grieve, links to your podcast, Coming Back, links to your website. What should listeners keep an eye out? Like what's next coming from you? Um, well, this morning I just launched a new series of workshops in the month of October and starting to go into November. Um, literally everything I do can be found at shelbyforsythia.com though, so I won't make anybody go anywhere that's not <laughs> already in the show notes. I won't complicate it more than it needs to be. Um, but these workshops are for grieving people to sit uh, online together on Zoom for about 90 minutes, and we're going deep on specific topics, so... Um, releasing anger and grief, letting go of the pain associated with guilt and grief. One that was really popular that I ran last month and will be running again was called Sit and Stay in Painful Emotions. And so it's like, what do I do when I feel like this agony might just actually physically kill me? Um, And having conversations with people from all over the world, whoever decides to sign up, um, about what that looks like in each of their grief experience, it's all very custom tailored to your story and how you show up. So it's not a thing where I have like a PowerPoint and we go click through all the slides. It's very much like bring your stories. Let's, let's see how reframing this or even just sharing it in a group space can help it be easier for you to carry. Yeah. And they've been really, really powerful to do. So I've got four or five of those that are ready now to be signed up for. Um, and then keep your eye out for news of a third book in 2021. I haven't really done, uh, too much publicly with it, but something in me knows it's already on the way. <laughs> well, it says a lot of you can just release one and like already be ready to be working on on the third one. So uh, I will be keeping an eye out for that too. And I'm sure you'll be back on the show when that show is, when that book is ready to go as well. So Shelby, thank you so much for being part of Grief Out Loud today and for all the work that you're doing and all the space you're creating for people around the world to come and engage with their grief and and be present with other people's grief. I just really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you so much, Jana. And thanks to everybody listening to Grief Out Loud today. 
And listeners, we say it every time, but thank you for tuning in. Um, Please feel free to share the show with anybody you think that might get something out of it. If you want to reach out to me, you can just email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. And if you want to learn more about Grief Out Loud or the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families, we are located in Portland, Oregon. Just go to our website, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G forward slash grief out loud. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you.